today provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on today. China's Chang'e 4 probe successfully landed on the far side of the moon. UK and France have agreed to step up migrant patrols in English Channel. Apple blames China for weak iPhone sales. You're listening to Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, we'll have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. China's Chang'e 4 probe has successfully landed on the far side of the moon. This is the first ever soft landing on this uncharted area. The probe also sent the world's first close shot of the moon's far side through the Chechia Rayleigh satellite. The Chang'e 4 is expected to study the mineral composition and shallow lunar surface structure of the moon's far side, as well as perform low-frequency astronomical observation. It will be a key step in revealing the mysterious side of the moon, which never faces the Earth. With more on this, we are now joined on the line by Zhang Fen, Associate Professor of Astronomy Department of Beijing Normal University, and Maurice Jones, Australian Space Analyst and Writer. Welcome. So Ma- well, Maurice, let's start with a very simple question. What is the far side of the moon? I think some call it the, the dark side, but actually it is not dark all the time, right? No, no the, the far side of the moon has night and day, uh, just like the moon side has. Uh, but we call it the far side because it is the side of the moon that never faces the Earth. And before we could launch a spacecraft for the moon, nobody had any idea of what the far side even looks like. So uh, even though we've been looking at the near side of the moon for centuries or even millennia, we just didn't know about the far, anything about the far side of the moon until the space stage began. So I think it is dark not because it's lack of light, but because it's, it's largely unknown to our humans, but perhaps with more exploration on, on it, it will no longer be dark anymore. So, uh, Professor John, well, yes? Professor John, uh, uh, we know this Chang'e 4 probe has made its first ever soft landing on the far side of the moon. How significant is this? Well, to me, it is uh, pretty massive because um, I'm an astronomer. Uh, one of my hopes is that there's going to be a, a working outpost on the backside of the moon where you can put telescope pointed away from Earth and all the noise is coming from it. Um, so now they've already done it. They've done the, the landing, so they can't say that, oh, this, there's technical difficulties and all that. So uh, terrible, terribly good news. Mm-hmm. And Maurice, um, how does this spacecraft communicate with the Earth? Well, several months before uh, Chang'e 4 was launched, uh, China put a satellite into orbit uh, above a stable gravitational point, uh, right above the far side of the moon. And this is a communications relay satellite uh, that has a view of the far side of the moon, and it also has a view of the Earth because of its, of its orbit. And without that satellite, there would be no way uh, for any uh, lander on the moon uh, to communicate with Earth because there is no direct line of sight between the Earth and the far side of the moon for a radio signal to travel. So launching this special satellite uh, is the very key that makes this mission possible. Yes, and Maurice, by the way, what do you make of the significance of this uh, first ever soft landing on the far side of the moon? 
I think it's just so significant because uh, you can study the far side of the moon from orbit, and it's been mapped from orbit extensively. They've taken photographs and got some idea of mineral composition. Uh, but if you really want to understand uh, what the surface of the moon or, or another body in space is like, you really have to land there because that's the only way you, that you can properly investigate uh, another object in space. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Professor Zhang, we know there has been many robotic or human visitors to the near side of the moon over the years. For example, all six of NASA's crewed Apollo missions to the lunar surface touched down on the near side. But it seems that the far side is a much tougher target for lunar exploration. Why is that? Well, first of all, there's that communication problem that um, Morris just des- described. You, you have to put that satellite uh, that on, 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 in a in a location that's further away from the moon and keep it working properly and all that. And also you need to be, be able to make it communicate properly with the, uh, with the lunar lander itself, although uh, both are limited in size and, and, and energy output they can have. Um, there's, uh, there are other problems as well. On the backside of the moon, there are a lot more potholes. So the, uh, apparently it's, uh, the backside of the moon has been hit by more uh, stuff from space and, and it's full of craters. Um, so it's very difficult to find good landing sites, and once you find one, um, the margin for error is smaller because the uh, the good spot is smaller in size. So you can't just sort of casually glide down from your orbit to the sideways and just land wherever it's convenient. You you have to almost like uh, drop out of the uh, the orbit and land vertically straight down, uh, and that's much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, Maurice, what do you see as the most difficult part of landing on the far side of the moon? I think that the most difficult part um, is not so much the communications delay with Earth. Uh, it's the fact that the lander has to make its own decision in the final part of the landing, and the fact that the moon's surface is very rough, and it has to look out for objects that, uh, like big boulders that could uh, tip it over. And so that the very fact that the lander has to, uh, has to make its own mind up and has to avoid objects. I, I think that's probably the most dangerous part of the mission, just finding mm-hmm. a safe place to land. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this reminds lot of, lots of people of that famous moon speech by John F. Kennedy, which used to go to the moon and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. But we know at that time, this was more about the struggle for hegemony between the U.S. and Soviet Union. But Professor John, why does China now choose to go to to go with this difficult task to explore the far side of the moon? Well, uh, I guess part of it is, uh, is to demonstrate capabilities and build up capabilities. I hope they're using this as an opportunity to to build the the the, the outpost I was talking about. Um, and, and also, uh, the front side of the moon has been explored by other nations and by China already. Um, so you want to go to places where there's more geologically interesting stuff. Um, the, the particular site they chose is geologically very interesting, and also you want to you, you want to basically sample. It's exploring, right? You want to go to places where it hasn't been mm-hmm. before. Maurice, what do you think? Um, I think that uh, China is serving many different purposes for the lunar program. I mean, it's exploration. Strength of science and technology, its prestige on the world stage, and it's also setting the stage for bigger tasks in the future, like uh, sending uh, a sample return mission to the moon and eventually sending uh, Chinese astronauts there. So 
there's no simple purpose, there's no single purpose for, for why China is doing this. Mm-hmm. Well, Maurice, uh, we know that the Chang'e 4 probe actually blasted off nearly a month ago on December the 8th, and it took only four days for it to enter into the orbit. Then why did the landing take so many days? The landing took a long time because they wanted to wait uh, for, for the moon to be in the right phase. Uh, one, day, one normal length of daylight on the moon lasts, lasts for about two weeks. And what that means is that, uh, depending on the angle of the sun, you've got different uh, angles of shadow on the rocks and the craters. And so you want to pick a, ta- a, a precise time to land on the moon uh, when you have enough shadows so that you can uh, pick up terrain features when you're trying to land, but you also have enough daylight uh, so that the rover can operate for several days and charge its batteries and then hopefully... Uh, get enough work done so that it can survive the lunar night and then start up again. So I think it's all because of the angle of the sun, the angle of the shadows, and the length of, of daylight that it will have soon after it lands. Well, Professor Zhang, it is said that the China's lunar calendar actually could be consulted when deciding the, the appropriate time of landing. Is that really the case? Well, I don't know whether they actually use it, but um, uh, that probably makes sense because... Um, it describes the, uh, the the lighting condition on the moon as more as just that. That's uh, that's a very important thing. So for both parts, uh, things yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, could, could you tell us more about the scientific research that it is going to conduct on the far side of the moon? Uh, it would do it would do the usual thing. It has ground penetrating radar. It will probe underneath and see see what kind of structure rocks are underneath. Uh, but interestingly, um, it's also carrying a uh, low-frequency radio wave detector, uh, so meter-length meter wavelength wave, um, to detect radiation from the sun, from other uh, planets in our solar system. Uh, that will tell us something about the inner workings of this uh, celestial objects. And the reason why you're doing that on the moon instead of on Earth is because um, Earth has an ionosphere that, that basically just blocks those all out. And even if those things can, can penetrate down, um, that, those frequencies are essentially the radio broadcasting frequencies. So instead of hearing the sound, um, a, a telescope on Earth would, would, would just, just hear us chatting, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, Maurice, um, where, where does this energy come from? It is reported that it will also use the, the nuclear energy. Is that kind of breakthrough? The lander and the uh, rover get most of their energy from solar panels. There are small amounts of uh, radioactive material on board the spacecraft, but that's really just to keep it warm during the lunar night to make sure that the batteries and the electronics do not freeze. Uh, And during the lunar night, uh, because there is no sunlight, uh, the spacecraft won't be able to generate solar energy, and therefore it probably won't do very much. And I expect some of the solar panels on the rover will fold inside uh, to help keep the rover warm. And so basically when the sun shines, uh, the lander and the rover will both work. But uh, when, it, when it's nighttime, and that night lasts for about two weeks, there probably won't be much activity. Well, Professor John, uh, what role does this play in the entire lunar exploration of, of China? Uh, so now is China three uh, with down the front, uh, with channel four with down the back. So it's sort of a Earth 
uh, robotic exploration thing is 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 nearly wrapping up. And then the next step would be uh would be having a Chang'e five go there and bring back a lot of samples. So that's a return mission. Uh, technically a lot challenging. We need much larger rocket for that. And then beyond that, I think people are thinking about uh, building a, a robotic base that's um, that's that's human capable, but not necessarily having any human actually on there. So it, it, there's a lot to to follow. Mm, so Maurice, maybe uh, look uh, look at the the bigger picture. What will be the priority of humans' future lunar exploration? Well, I, I think uh, China eventually plans to land astronauts on the moon. And uh, that that will be done for national prestige, but it's also very good scientifically because even though you can do a lot with robot spacecraft like the Chang'e mission, uh, if you send a skilled human to the moon, they can do things that robots cannot do uh, if, they, if they've got skills to observe things. And it's also their dexterity, what they can do with their hands, how they can retrieve rocks and set up equipment. Uh, and it's, I think it's important to remember that we don't have a proper understanding of how the moon formed or how it relates to the Earth or what its interior is like. And so there are a lot more mysteries to be uncovered about the moon. And living on the moon and sending astronauts there is also practice for sending humans deeper into space, such as missions to Mars. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, some say that besides the exploration of those uh, mysteries on the moons, uh, people, uh, human beings, is also going to start the exploitation uh, of the lunar space. Is that right? I don't think we're going to see any mining of the moon for quite some time. Uh, there's, there's talk about mining nuclear fuel from the moon, uh, mining helium-3, which is a, a specialized process of helium, which could be used in nuclear fusion reactors to generate power on Earth. But the trouble is we can't build a fusion reactor for power generation yet, and we don't even know if we would need to mine helium-3 from the moon to run it. So I think it's going to be a very long time uh, before anything is mined from the moon. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Professor John, is China also promoting international cooperation in this lunar expo- uh, exploration program? Yeah, uh, as always. Um, so, for example, on this particular one, there's a German lunar surface neutron detector. It was essentially a Geiger counter. Um, there's a Swedish uh, neutral atom detector, which basically studies the uh, interaction between solar wind and the lunar surface. And there are other other stuff as well. For example, there's a, I think there's a Saudi camera on one of the nano satellites flying with Magpie Bridge, the, uh, the the communication relay satellite. So lots and lots of different countries involved. Mm-hmm. And Maurice, uh, the NASA administrator once talked about the possibility of collaboration with the Chinese agency. So uh, are we expecting China-U.S. cooperation in in space exploration in the near future? I don't think that will happen in the very near future. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Jim Brindenstein is not the first NASA administrator uh, who expressed the desire to work with China. We also saw that with Charlie Bolden, who actually visited China when he was NASA administrator to try to start talks. But every time NASA tries to do this, they have to deal with the fact that the U.S. government, at a very senior level, uh, is blocking uh, cooperation between the U.S. and China in outer so there are a lot of scientists in America who would love to work with China, uh, but because of U.S. government policy and laws, uh, they are forbidden from doing so. And I don't think that the United States will change that policy for quite some time. 
Okay, thank you, Maurice Jones, Australian space analyst and writer, as well as John Fan, associate professor for of astronomy department of Beijing Normal University. You're listening to today. You're listening to today. We'll be back in a minute. Everything in focus, all in one place. China Plus focuses on the Middle Kingdom, bringing you breaking news and the stories that matter to you. Search for China Plus in the App Store or Google Play. Welcome back. You're listening to today. I'm Zhao Ying. Chinese State Councilor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi is paying an official visit to the African Union and four African countries. The trip from January the second to sixth to the AU and Ethiopia, Burkina Faso, Gambia, and Senegal is at the invitation of the foreign ministers of the four nations and the chairman of the AU. Chinese foreign minister has chosen Africa for the first overseas visit each year over the past years, and Wang Yi's visit is a continuation of this tradition, which speaks volume for the importance that China attaches to its ties with Africa. On Wang Yi's visit and the China-Africa relationship in general, my colleague Xu Chindu spoke to Beninese ambassador to Beijing, Simon Pierre Adovolonde. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has embarked on a trip to Africa at the beginning of the new year, 2019. So actually, this has been the normal since the 1990s. So, what's your reading of the Chinese practice, which gives Africa a special place in Chinese external relationship? I think this is uh, uh, an expression of the continuation of what our four previous leaders have done, because any time that I see uh, the minister of foreign, the foreign,、uh, foreign affairs minister traveling to Africa to open his year, it reminds me the relationship between Chairman Mao Zedong with our leaders. At the time that both our continent, country of China and Africa, was facing a challenge of、uh, colonization and also independence, and for me, this is the expression of recognition, but also the continuation of a friendship, a friendship despite all the challenges that the world is facing now, is to maintain what our previous leaders have started. Then for me, it's a, a great sign that、uh, we are on the right path. But also, our sincerity is not just in the words, but also in action. Is to showing the action of what we are saying, we are doing it. Is the combination of speech and action, and it's great.、Uh, it it giving a great confidence. On our relationship, the sincerity of our relationship between China and Africa. Well, speak of uh, uh, action. You know, the year 2018 witnessed、uh, the Beijing summit of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. So the two sides, China and Africa, agreed upon eight cooperation initiatives. So please tell us how do these initiatives meet the need of the development in Africa? The eight initiatives don't come from nowhere. Before the summit, we have many meetings between both sides to evaluate the previous focus, the Johannesburg summit outcome. How we implement that outcome? What are the strength and the weakness? And based upon the result of what we achieve in the past, we come with this eight initiative. Then it's, it's not just something that China proposed to Africa. But the common ground result, based upon the work that we did 
before they forecast. Then for me, is the re, reflect and the eight com component reflect the common needs from both parts. Is the result of an agreement of a cooperation between China and Africa. Then for me, all the eight components that we have the, as the outcome of the forecast are the result of our common need for the next coming year for our people. When meeting your president, um, Patrice Talon, uh, in Beijing last year, Chinese President Xi Jinping said, you know, China and Africa are good brothers, friends and partners. He stressed that the Chinese people will never forget the deep friendship and precious support from the African people. You know, some have described, uh, including myself, actually, you know, China-Africa relationship as a special relationship. Uh, is that a proper characterization? Special relationship, but also, let's say, right and uh, responsible relationship. Responsible because each part in this relationship has his own strategy. It's not something that one part imposes to the other part. It's freely based upon the needs and the priority of each part that we come on agreement of what we have to. That shows one of the key characteristics for Chinese people, they are humble. Humble and also want to share. Then this relationship, what is make it really special is none of the party come and judge the other on what he's doing, but is coming to share what they have. Everybody come around the table and want to share what they have in openness. That is where the term win-win cooperation come from. In not, I'm not come around the table to impose something to you, but I share what I have, I present what I have, and see based upon what you want to do, how can we work together. That is why it, there is a lot of criticism about this relationship, because it's not like the former relationship that we used to know. And those who are criticized that they are lost because they don't find the characteristic of what they used to do in this type of relationship that Africa and China have together. And for me, it's something that we need to, to show and teach to others in terms of relationship between two parts of the uh, continent. Well, you know, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, uh, by the Chinese side plays um, a role in further linking China and Africa uh, through infrastructure and other aspects uh, in terms of construction. But also there are, you know, reports, as we mentioned, the criticism mostly in Western media, uh, saying that the Chinese investment in infrastructure in particular, uh, like in Africa, um, you know, some even label it as a debt diplomacy or debt trap. Uh, so what's your response to that kind of allegation? Thank you. The, when I have two, two reflections about that, those who are talking about depth are more in depth than those who are, they are talking about. Yes. Sometimes you wonder what they are talking about. But the second uh, reflection that gives me is to, is like a, a lack of respect to those they are talking about. Talking like that about Africa is like uh, they are taking our leaders and our countries like uh, irresponsible people. We know what we are doing. 
we know what we are doing, we have a, a planification of our economy and our development. And then for me, it's a discussion between China and Africa. And each country has its own policy, each country has its own vision. The Belt and Road Initiative for me is an opportunity that China is giving, special to my country, Benin, to add more venue or more tools of cooperation and have more resources to the development of our infrastructure. But it's for our countries, based upon our plan, but based upon also our strategy and our strength to build our plan and have our debt system in place and the management of the debt system. Then for me, Belt and Road Initiative, I'm so glad that my country is part of that. I'm so glad and so happy that during the visit of my country, and my president in China, we signed the agreement that now Benin is fully part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's up to us, China and Africa and Benin, to develop our plan to take better understanding by better use of the resources that come through the Belt and Road Initiative. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ambassador. That's Simon, that's Simon Pierre Aldovolonde, ambassador from Benin to China, speaking with my colleague Xu Chindo. Coming up, UK and France have agreed to step up migrant patrols in English Channel. Apple blames China for weak iPhone sales. And also coming up in other news, two weeks into the U.S. government shutdown, federal workers are struggling to pay for medicine. And travelers leaving Japan will have to pay departure tax starting this month. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. With the great efforts made by the staff, today become one of the great uh, platforms for policy debates and information dissemination. And I wish today have an even brighter and greater tomorrow. As a guest speaker with today, I feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishments and also China's rich cultural heritage and, of course, China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. I believe today opens the window as well as build a bridge between people in China and the world. You're listening to Today, I'm Zhao Ying. Now is Global Survey, where we look at what's happening around the world. Joining me in the studio is my colleague Patrick Flannery. First in Asia, Chinese startup Luckin expects to overtake Starbucks as the country's largest coffee chain. And tourists in Thailand are leaving their resort vacations ahead of a tropical storm expected to churn up 20-foot waves. In Oceania, a 16-year-old is in jail after police say he fatally stabbed a man at a Church of Scientology complex in Sydney. New Zealand's largest DVD rental store is closing after 21 years in Auckland and selling its inventory of 60,000 movies and games. In Africa, we still do not know who will be the next president of DR Congo, as vote counters await 80% of election tallies. And Algeria is banning Syrians from entering the country in hopes of keeping out members of defeated rebel groups. Turning to the Middle East, 
An Egyptian human rights activist wants his wife pardoned for accusing authorities of doing nothing to protect women from sexual harassment. Qatar has doubled its tax on alcohol, putting the cost of a 12-pack of beer at about $80. In Europe, the former Brexit minister is urging UK Prime Minister Theresa May to delay the vote on whether to leave the European Union. One in every three cars sold in Norway last year was electric, a new world record. In Latin America, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro launched new measures to crack down on crime and shrink the size of government. Two victims of sexual abuse by the Chilean Catholic Church accused the country's bishops of failing to reform the church. Finally, in North America, U.S. State Secretary Mike Pompeo demands answers from Russia over its detention of a former Marine accused of spying in Moscow. And drug makers have slapped a bigger price tag on more than 250 prescription medications, including the world's top-selling medicine, Humira, a treatment for Crohn's disease. Thank you, Patrick. That's the global headline survey for today. Two men have been arrested on suspicion of arranging the illegal movement of migrants across the English Channel, according to UK's National Crime Agency. The UK government has redeployed patrol vessels from the Mediterranean amid concerns at a rise in crossings. Meanwhile, it is being reported that Home Secretary Sajid Javid has requested help from Royal Navy. The Home Secretary, who has cut short a family holiday last week, agreed a joint action with the French Interior Minister during a phone call to step up joint patrols and increase surveillance to tackle a rise in a number of migrants trying to reach Britain in small boats. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Dr. George Zugopoulos, senior research fellow of International Center for European Studies. Dr. Zugopoulos, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, first of all, why is there a, a, a spike in refugees trying to cross the English Channel in small boats? Well,、uh, as you correctly describe it, the, there is a, a higher number of refugees uh, uh, attempting to cross in the last、uh, month. Uh, and there are two main explanations for this.、Uh, the first is that、uh, the conditions、uh, in the French、uh, camps in the northern part of、uh, France are difficult and intolerable for many、uh, refugees, as well as police brutality around there. And the second、uh, reason, which is、uh, mainly related to politics, is the fact that、uh, Brexit—I mean, the coming Brexit—is creating、uh, concern and fear to the refugees. That in the future they will not be able to enter、uh, the UK and find a job there, and、uh, the refugees are、uh, collecting information by the smugglers. They are not very well informed. So、uh, as long as the smugglers are generating fear that in the future they will not be able to reach the UK, they are, are attempting to do it now under the current conditions. <laughs> so, on those refugees who try to make the crossings, where where do they mostly come from? Well, we have、uh, data which were released、uh, recently by the UK. There are、uh, several countries like、uh, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, as well as、uh, African countries,、uh, in particular Sudan and Eritrea. Uh, however, it's also interesting that there are many、uh, Kurdish people who are currently located in the northern camps of France and want to go、uh, to the UK because the Kurdish people from Syria, Iraq,、uh, and uh, Iran、uh, they do not have their own state, so they are trying to find alternatives、uh, in, in Europe.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so, do you have more details about the joint action between Britain and France? Like, how are they going to put into place? 
What are they going to well, do? Well, there was an agreement reached uh, recently between uh, the migrant ministers of the UK and uh, France, and uh, these uh, agreements stipulate for uh, a better uh, coordination of actions between the two countries in order to monitor uh, the situation and increase uh, the patrols. However, it's not clear uh, right now what this will uh, mean as far as cooperation is concerned because the agreement was uh, reached uh, uh, only a few years ago. It's the holiday period for both countries. So what we know is that there is a, a common will of uh, Paris and London to cooperate, but at the same time uh, it's not clear whether for the time being uh, the UK can benefit by its potential because some of its ships that it will possibly use in order to better control the situation can be used because they are recently in the Aegean as it was uh, agreed in 2016 between uh, the British Prime Minister Theresa May and the European Union in order to deal with the refugee crisis in this part of the Mediterranean. So we have to wait and see uh, whether more details will be revealed in the next days. Yeah, and also it's said that it's been debated in the UK that more patrols could potentially encourage more people to try to make the crossings if they see those patrols as rescue boats. Yes, uh, this is uh, correct. And uh, uh, what we can say is that uh, there are some refugees who are also having the economic opportunity to reach the small uh, boats. And as you are saying, uh, maybe the smugglers will possibly uh, draw parallels between uh, the rescue boats and the small boats that they are uh, using in order to bring the refugees to the UK. So, uh, indeed, the problem can be can deteriorate in the future, especially because some uh, families of the refugees do have the financial capacity in order to pay the smugglers who can then deceive them. Mm-hmm. And the main UK opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, said that uh, there was a duty to reach out the hand of humanity to people facing danger and seeking safety. Uh, so there seems to be a moral dilemma. I mean, should solidarity with the refugees and displaced, displaced persons be viewed as a, a basic value and part of the global ethic or global commons? Or should the immigrants be seen as a threat and dealt with accordingly? Well, there is a big debate now, not only in the UK, but also in other countries, what to do with uh, uh, the, the refugees. Uh, normally, social democratic parties like the, the one of uh, Jeremy Corbyn tend to uh, defend the rights of, of the refugees, while conservative parties uh, believe that uh, the refugees uh, do practically harm the national economies. It's a very, very difficult uh, debate. And under current circumstances uh, in, in, in the UK, uh, I, I think that uh, divisions uh, are becoming uh, uh, more, uh, more clear. And Jeremy Corbyn is not generally having a straightforward, straightforward stance, uh, not only on the refugee crisis, but also uh, regarding uh, Brexit. So I think that uh, as, as things are developing in, in, in the UK, I think it will be uh, even more worse regarding the reception of the, the refugees, especially as the critical vote for in the British Parliament for Brexit uh, is, uh, is looming. But generally speaking, uh, there are governments, even in Europe, uh, Greece is a case, which uh, are uh, prepared to, to host the refugees, while other governments, like in Hungary, for instance, which are more and more skeptical. It's a very difficult debate, and the next European Parliament election will be critical in that regard.
Yeah, actually, uh, we've seen the election of of populist governments in in many countries in in Europe. So, do you think this is con- will continue to reshape the politics in in Europe in the coming year in 2019? I think yes, it's a very good、uh, question, and the experience from the European crisis, the debt one, the economic one, and the refugee one. Are suggesting that the second, the refugee crisis, has had、uh, already a much more important impact in the voting behavior of、uh, citizens, and we see that、uh, far-right parties are on the rise because they are tending to benefit by what they see as a threat、uh, because of the coming refugees. And what is even more worrying is that this is happening also in countries. Uh, which are not necessarily encountered with economic problems, like Germany, for instance, or also the Netherlands and、uh, and also uh, Austria. Uh, I think that the, the debate is is fruitful,、uh, but at the same time, also the, the European citizens are a little bit afraid because there are some terrorist attacks that are regularly taking place since 2015. Some of them can be associated with the flow of the refugees, which has reached Europe in the last three years. So the debate is very difficult, and as it is normally happening in times of crisis, populist politicians are on the rise because they can say to several citizens what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And、uh, recently, the Rwandan president Paul Kagame said in an interview that Europe's failed policies in Africa are actually the drivers of the immigration crisis hitting the European continent because、uh, their investment in Africa basically has a return ticket. Does that does he have a point? Well, this was a very interesting interview.、Uh, the, the, the president of Rwanda was in Vienna and spoke to an Austrian、uh, newspaper. And what he said is that uh, uh, European investments、uh, in Africa do not、uh, necessarily contribute to the money to be kept in the African countries. By contrast, the European companies and the European countries are practically interested in benefiting by the investments and bringing them the people, the, the money back to Europe. And this is what uh, is uh, creating uh, the tendency of some African people. To uh, visit uh, and visit and live in Europe because they do not find many opportunities、uh, in Africa, as、uh, be- because the type and the nature of European investments、uh, is, uh, is is of that of that kind. And I-, I should say that this is a very interesting interview because in this interview the, the president also、uh, compared the investments of European countries with that of China. And when talking about China, he said. That、uh, Chinese companies are creating job positions for African people, and that、uh, this is what makes the image of China even better in in Africa in comparison to Europe. I think this interview was very good, and it is it is giving、uh, some insights about the different nature of investments coming from from Europe and from from China in 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 this continent. And according to the United Nations, by 2050, migrants will account for 82 percent of the overall population growth in developed countries, and perhaps the situation might be even worse in Europe. So, what kind of impact will it have on the locals in terms of their culture, identity, or the social stability? I think we need to find a best way to deal with this problem, right? Well, this is a very good question. I think that、uh, the, the impact、uh, will be large and significant. And this is already、uh, happening because we see that、uh, very often refugees and immigrants who are working in in European、uh, countries are, are making、uh, jobs that the Europeans、uh, 
uh, are, uh, are very often hesitant of uh, undertaking. Uh, the, the tendency is uh, uh, that this will be even more significant uh, in, in, in the future, and uh, theoretically multicultural, multiculturalism and better education can contribute towards a better understanding and can provide a better reception and hospitality for uh, immigrants and, and refugees. But again, this is very difficult for the political uh, circumstances. However, a long-term approach is, is required because uh, the short-term and the medium-term approach is not working in the favor of, of, this, uh, tend, of this different tendency and, 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 uh, and, and the refugees who, who do not necessarily feel uh, at home when they are reaching uh, Europe. I think that Politics is the main obstacle as opposed to the long-term vision of improving uh, education starting at schools. Thank you, Dr. George Zugopoulos, Senior Research Fellow of International Center for European Studies. Apple has cut its first quarter revenue outlook, citing weaker-than-anticipated sales for iPhones in China. That expected number is now at $84 billion, sharply lower than the earlier forecast, averaging $91 billion. Apple CEO Tim Cook tells investors that slowing sales are partly because of the trade friction between the U.S. and China. Cook says other factors will also decrease Apple's revenue, including the timing of his iPhone launches last year. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier talked with Wang Dan, analyst of the Economist Intelligence Unit, and Yao Shujie, Chongkong professor of economics at Chongqing University. First of all, Tim Cook in the letter is largely attributing the slowing sales to weaker than expected sales of iPhones in China, among some other things like the timing of new iPhone launches and a strong U.S. dollar. But how would you evaluate those factors behind its weaker performance? I think those factors are important, but they're secondary. Uh, if we look at a strong dollar, of course, it will weaken its profit, um, but Apple is still one of the most profitable uh, cell phone producers. And those uh, facts, I think, will only work on a margin. Um, the timing of the launch was really just okay. It's consistent with the past and nothing abnormal. Uh, what's really striking to me is actually how unpopular this new iPhone model is. Um, they're not really uh, the transformative innovation people have been waiting for. It's quite pricey for what you got. So that's why it's not doing well in China. It's not the trade war or other things behind it, I think. The fundamental problem, as Dan just mentioned, I think, in my view, is, is the value for money issue. Because iPhone is always priced uh, fairly high uh, to attract customers because they want to pay the brand premium. But the competitors' quality has been improved over the years, uh, particularly Huawei, Samsung, and, and others. They are catching up so quickly. And if iPhone has not changed the pricing strategy, I think it will, it will certainly go down, uh, not, not just now, but in the future. The challenge for iPhone is real. Uh, you either have to have a, a much better model that is uh, different from any other model existing in the market, or you have to have a realistic price. Mm. I think the fundamental problem for iPhone is that it's not good value for money for many, many customers. So then, did China's smartphone market really reach saturation and people don't want new smartphones as much as they did in the past few years? Or is that uh, the Huawei story, the, the mainly you know, a strong competitor of, of Apple in China's market? 
Um, for China's smartphone market, I think this argument of saturation is true for some groups, but not for others. Uh, from what I saw uh, through interviews and surveys, people from smaller cities actually are still very fond of buying new cell phones. They want to upgrade. And they would do this through consumer loans, um, through uh, Jingdong uh, or Tianmao, uh, different platforms. It's just the Apple product is not the most popular one. Instead, it's Vivo, Xiaomi, Huawei. These are more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the urban, uh, the large city consumers, I think saturation may have happened among uh, the uh, the highest, uh, the most highly value uh, value added consumers. But I don't particularly like the saturation uh, this word because from the quantity, everyone has a cell phone for sure, a smartphone. It's enough, including myself. But if there is some new innovation that's appealing to me, I would immediately go out and get one.、Uh, mm-hmm. For older models, it's probably saturated. And talking about Apple,、uh, actually, then what does the performance of other Apple products look like? For example, the iPad,、mm-hmm. AirPods, Bluetooth earphones, and MacBook laptops. Are they strong enough to offset the weaker sales in iPhones? And their performance has been mediocre、uh, for the past few years. It's not just this year. Uh, it only reached to a small group of people,、uh, usually high income,、uh, the middle class in large cities. Not enough to offset、uh, the weaker sale for iPhone for sure. Especially the AirPods、uh, that Apple has put so much faith in.、Um, they are very good knockoffs in China.、Uh, Look similar. It sounds very good. And for MacBook, it's a very good computer too. But Chinese people are still not used to it.、Um, people prefer PC. And that's why Microsoft Service is having a spectacular year in China. And simultaneously, you can actually take the screen from the Microsoft Surface and use it, kind of similar to an i- iPad. So there's really、uh, no reason for people to get out to buy the new model、uh, of the iPad from、uh, Apple. And then, so what does the future look like for the company if it still wants to create brand new stuff and maintain its innovative power? Um, to me, Apple is still a very, very good company、uh, in terms of innovation, supply chain, its reputation, and also has a very good culture.、Uh, I've been to several classes of the Apple University.、Uh, they have quite good classes teaching、uh, not just the technology but also uh, culture, uh, philosophy, things like that. But fundamentally,、um, whether Apple can sustain or even lead in the future. Is that whether it can retain talent、uh, mm-hmm. in the tech sector? It's very fluid. The tech turnover is quite fast、um, for good designers, good programmers.、Uh, if they find the innovation ability of Vivo、uh, is more exciting, and there's higher spending in research and development, they might as well jump over to the other company. And so then, people always say Apple under Cook is losing new ideas and being less bold and ambitious. But for a giant company, for Apple, so is it necessarily a bad thing? I think the risk is rising.、Uh, there's a very good book I read not long ago called Innovator's Dilemma,、uh, written by Chris Benson. That's a professor from Harvard Business School. And he talked about how the new technology can disrupt incumbent leading companies,、uh, like Kodak. That's a classic example. It didn't see the fall of films, and then it's out. And for Apple,、uh, it does look like in the past 20 years,、uh, it started to emerge as starting from a disruptor,、um, but slowly growing into this established tech giants. 
And there is a high risk that it cannot have the breakthrough it enjoyed before because the system is simply too complicated to accommodate new、uh, new innovations.、Mm. And Shujie, so is it just、uh, Apple or other tech giants like Amazon, like Facebook, are also experiencing a tough time? Yes, I mean in the whole business、uh, history, lots of companies they 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 established and they grown, they become dominant. And and after a few decades, they may grow down significantly,、uh, such as Sony and many other companies in Japan. But I don't think that the same story will probably、uh, just、uh, replicated for the、uh, American tech giant. But certainly, some of these tech giants would grow the same way as the Japanese tech giant,、uh, the Japanese、uh, electronic giants. And some of them may be able to escape the so-called、uh, you know technological trap, like. Moving into a new area such as the intelligent, <coughs> artificial intelligence, and in other new area which we don't know at this stage,、uh, but they're just following the traditional model because as they move on, there are more and more competition in the market, and and the company who fail to spot new opportunity, and they stuck into the old model, then they will get into trouble,、mm. and and Apple Apple is likely to get this way. So, Dan, both you and Shujie talk about the, the challenges, the tough challenges faced by the、uh, tech giants. But how do you think? How important is the、uh, strategy adjustment for those big tech giants? And which one is doing better on this front? I think strategy adjustment for big tech giants is important, but it cannot be too fast. And in fact, all those tech giants have very diverse, diversified businesses. Like Amazon and Netflix, they're getting into this uh, uh, subscription economy, and both are doing quite well.、Um, but、uh, in terms of who's doing better, I actually, in my head, that's Tencent. Because when you evaluate a technology company,、uh, you you look at two things. One is how innovative or the technology uh, uh, factor,、uh, how good it is, and the other one is platform. And Tencent doesn't have any rivals, and it still can level on、uh, China's huge market potential. So,、uh, comparing to Amazon and Netflix and Facebook,、uh, actually Tencent is facing a much more profitable market in the future than them. That's Wang Dan, analyst of Economist Intelligence Unit, and Yao Shujie, Chengkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University, speaking with Xiao Yan. Now, Patrick Flannery is joining us for other news. Almost two weeks into the U.S. government shutdown, 800,000 federal workers are facing a very scary prospect: no paycheck, not until the government reopens, and it won't without Democratic approval to fund President Trump's demand for a five billion dollar wall along the Mexican border. This leaves almost a million workers scrambling to make rent, car payments, and other bills. So many are now dipping into savings, putting off vacations, so they can afford to pay for prescription medications. So, how desperate is the situation? Well, Trump's executive order froze federal worker salaries for the year. Half of them are now working without pay; the other half are furloughed at home.、Uh, PBS NewsHour reported that eight in ten American workers live paycheck to paycheck, and their average credit card debt is about eight thousand dollars U.S. So, this comes at the same week as drug makers increase the price of many prescription drugs. So, how are some of these workers struggling? What kind of hardships are they immediately facing? CNBC did a nice piece on this. They talked to several people. One was a tax examiner, a federal worker. He says he cannot afford his insulin medication. Another person works for Border Protection and asked his credit union if he should take out a loan. And what we're finding is some unions are representing federal workers. 
uh, and they're now suing the government for forcing them to work without pay. So, do these workers get back pay when they return to work once the shutdown ends? A back pay is not guaranteed.、Uh, there is a bill pending in Congress right now about whether to give furloughed workers back pay, but、uh, it kind of remains to be seen whether that happens. The next step is more important, and that happens later today in Washington D.C. And that's when Democrats hope. To adopt a bill to end the shutdown, and that's without funding a wall.、Mm-hmm. Let's move on to our next topic. We need to get ready to pay more to fly, and this has nothing to do with baggage fees. Some airports are now charging more to arrive and depart, and that means new travel taxes just for entering and exiting a certain place. So, if you're traveling into Venice, Italy, for example, you'll soon pay what's called a landing fee. Meanwhile, if you're leaving Japan, you'll pay a departure tax. The reasons behind these fees differ, though officials insist the money is needed in order to keep tourism alive. So, how much are how much are these new taxes going to cost tourists, and when do they take effect? Well, for Japan, it's next week. If you're flying out of any airport in the country, you'll pay an additional twelve dollars.、Uh, the Venetian landing fee in Italy that will cost about the same, and that goes effect in、uh, July. Many countries already charge departure taxes. It's nothing new:、uh, Mexico, Cuba, the Philippines. The case of Venice, Italy, is very interesting because it applies only to people arriving there, and not only by airplane. The fee will also apply to those arriving on cruise ships, since those tourists don't pay hotel taxes as it is. So, how will new taxes help to manage the, the mass tourism? Well, Venice gets about 24 million tourists every year. More than half of them are what they call day trippers. They come in for the day, they leave. People there complain that the day trippers bring their own food. Usually, they don't spend a whole lot of money during their visit. So this new fee will go toward cleaning the city as well. The mayor says because the more visitors you have, the more garbage gets produced. More garbage needs to be, be picked up, so you hire more city workers to do that.、Uh, regarding Japan, they get 30 million visitors a year, and the money collected on leaving Japan will pay for facial recognition at airports. And Japan, as we know, are really banking on more visitors over the next year ahead of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics. Okay, thank you, Patrick. That's all the time we have for this edition of today. To listen to this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World News Analysis." The program engineer of this episode is Ya Qing. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening.